Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I pursued her for three years. The arrow's target had been fixed and it was inevitable the tragedy would take place. This building is right at the heart of the British judicial system. It's, it's right at the heart of London. It feels like, you know, if Mustafa sees himself as an invader, then he's reached the very centre of the establishment. I think a lot of people like us who have these two cultures, we react to this, we understand this world where we're living one thing and having another space which is like a secret uh, place that we are not sharing with our normal day-to-day life. It was, gentlemen, after a long absence, seven years to be exact, during which time I was studying in Europe, that I returned to my people. That is the first sentence of Season of Migration to the North by the Sudanese novelist Tayeb Salih. It tells the story of an unnamed young man who returns to his village in northern Sudan and becomes increasingly obsessed with a mysterious stranger. It was first published in 1966 in Beirut in the literary magazine Hiwa, or Dialogue, and translated into English three years later by Dennis Johnson Davis as part of the pioneering Heinemann African Writers series. And since then, it has been translated into more than 30 different languages. It's been compared to Shakespeare's Othello, Conrad's Heart of Darkness, the writings of Sigmund Freud and Albert Camus. And in 2001, the Arab Literary Academy in Damascus voted it the most important Arabic novel of the 20th century. Hello and welcome to On the Road with Penguin Classics the podcast that takes a stroll around the world's favourite books. I'm Henry Elliott, the author of the Penguin Classics book, and in this episode, I'm going to migrate across the North-South Divide, tracing the strange stories and memories of London that lie at the heart of this extraordinary novel. But first, let me introduce our guest for today's episode, the novelist Leila Abulayla. Leila, welcome. Hello, Henry. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Leila Abulayla was born in Cairo to an Egyptian mother and Sudanese father. She grew up in Khartoum and moved in her mid-twenties to Aberdeen with her family. She's the author of six novels, including The Translator, which was shortlisted for the Sultai Prize, Minaret and Lyrics Alley, which won the Scottish Book of the Year Award for Fiction in 2011. 
Her latest novel, River Spirit, is set in 19th century Sudan and comes out in March 2023. Her writing has been praised by J.M. Coetzee, Ben Okri and Ali Smith, and she was the winner of the first Kane Prize for African Writing in 2000. In the introduction to the translator, the novelist Anne Donovan says that Leila's work is characterised by the extreme beauty of her prose. She describes the domestic and natural world in a way that is at once intensely poetic and utterly readable. And Leila, I've recently read The Translator and Minaret and absolutely love them, so I highly recommend those oh, to, to listeners. Now, Leila, like Tayeb Saleh, you're a Sudanese novelist who's settled in Britain, and when he died in 2009, you wrote a personal tribute for the literary magazine Banapal. Can you remember when you first came across Sally and his work? Well, of course, I was only two when uh, Season of Migration was published. Uh -huh. But as a teenager, I read the Season of Migration to the North in Arabic, first of all. And uh, it's, not the, it's not a young adult novel <laughs> at all. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> As we'll discover, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was a bit of a shock. <laughs> but uh, but I, I kept reading him all over the years, and, and, and his work is the sort of work that every time you come to it, you find something new mm -hmm. and you gain something. But what I remember is uh, is hearing that the, the kind of generation above me who were in university, mm. and uh, and I graduated from the same university as Taib Saleh. Right, uh, yeah. University of Khartoum. University right. of Khartoum, yeah. So they were there when... Um, Season of Migration first was published and it was published as a serial in the magazine Hiwar uh -huh. and that was published outside uh, Sudan in mm -hmm. Lebanon I think and so you know these installments would trickle their way into Sudan and they would be really rare so the students had to like set up a schedule there was so much demand to read it <laughs> that <laughs> that they had to kind of like set a schedule to read the latest installment wow. and uh, the professor of English who who told me this story said that he he had to stay up till three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, because that's when <laughs> what, his, That was his slot. That was his slot, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. incredible. That's yeah. amazing to have so much demand. Yeah. And did you ever meet him in person? or? Uh, yes, I did. Uh, uh -huh. Several times. Uh -huh. I met him several times. Yeah. Um, what was he like in person? Well, of course, he's exactly my father's age. So he's right. like my father's generation. Uh -huh. So um, they have so many things in common, this particular generation, you know, that they came at a time when there was a, a big difference between Britain and Sudan and they were all educated in Sudan and they all kind of had this uh, experience of British education. And uh, so both my dad and, and Tayyip Saleh were very in love with British culture and, and uh, British education and literature and things like that, yes. Well, that, that sort of blend of Britain and Sudan is exactly what we're going to be talking about today, isn't it? Well, let's, let's start walking through southwest London, where we're, we're standing now, and talk about the location of this novel, because it, the novel is split, isn't it, between two locations, between London, where we are, and a small village in northern Sudan. And that's where the, the novel opens. This narrator, we never learn his name, but he's been studying in Britain and he returns to his village in northern Sudan. And in many ways, that village is, again, we don't get told the name, but it seems very similar to the village of 
Karamakal, where Tayyip Saleh was born himself in 1928. Yes, and this village f features in, in many of Tayyip Saleh's work. Uh -huh. uh, and, and sometimes even the minor characters crop up again and again right. in other works. Because yeah. there's a, another of his well-known novellas is called The Wedding of Zayn, and several of the same characters crop up, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yes. And this village is um, on the banks of the Nile. Yeah, uh, yeah. So this village would have been quite north so it would have been relatively close to Egypt. So, of course, these northern villages and these northern tribes were Arab. Historically, they were loyal to Egypt and, and they had an affection for, for Egypt. And I think that that also is reflected in Tayyip Saleh's work and a, a love of, of you know, Arab culture and um, a kind of affinity to the Arab world. Mm -hmm. So unlike the West and the South. Which was more sort of uh, more deeply African, I would okay. say. Yeah. All the way through our conversation today, we're going to see that there are these mirrorings, these kind of um, opposites and symmetries. And in the way that there are two locations, there are there are kind of two protagonists in this novel as well, aren't there? In the first place, there's this this narrator. How would you introduce him, Leila? What do we know about him? Um, I, I like him very much. He's kind of gentle. He's he's uh, he's poetic, and uh, the reader kind of um, goes along with him and trusts him. And in a way, it is his story. And uh, with more and more that I read the book, I become kind of closer to the narrator rather mm. than the man he is so excited about. <laughs> so uh, so the novel really is about the narrator's fascination with another person. Yes. The so he, so the narrator, he's been studying in... He's rather self-deprecating, isn't he? He says that he's... Um, people assume he's a poet because he's spent three years delving into the life of an obscure English poet. We never get told who. But he comes back from these studies and arrives in the village. And it's, I think it's the next morning he wakes up and thinks, hold on, there was someone in the crowd yesterday that I didn't recognize. And this man comes to obsess him. And yes. so we learn that this, this new person in the village, this stranger, is called Mustafa Saeed. And, yeah, so how is he first introduced to us? What's, what are the narrator's first impressions of him? That he is uh, a stranger, that he is handsome, he's uh, quiet, he seems a little bit more sophisticated than the, than the average uh, villager. Mm. And of course, what is also very uh, uh, you know, mysterious about Mustafa Said is that he doesn't have a family. Mm. And that's very, very odd in Sudan, where right. people are so tied up with their family. Uh -huh. And this continues you know, once we start to learn more about him. Absolutely. There's a particular moment, isn't there, which really sort of shakes the narrator. In fact, he says he's terrified by this moment because he's been trying to work out who this Mustafa is. And then there's a moment when the narrator says, I heard him reciting English poetry in a clear voice and with an impeccable accent. And he, he recites a section from Ford Maddox Ford's poem about the First World War. The narrator says, he gave a deep sigh, this is Mustafa, still holding the glass between his hands, his eyes wandering off into the horizon within himself. And suddenly in that moment, you and the narrator see these 
inner depths to Mustafa. And you, as a reader, we become as obsessed as the narrator. Right? We want to know who is this man and what, what's his story. Yeah, that's, that's right. And um, of course, the shock of hearing English in this setting right. must have been a huge shock to the yes, narrator. Right. And, and the reader, of course, will also uh, feel the shock because there's you know very little education in, in this part and in this time in this era uh-huh. so for a villager of that age and he's also described as someone in his 50s yes right would suddenly speak in perfect english and and and, and it always starts to become surreal and it describes him as like a genie and a, yes, uh, yes 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 he says he'd be, he'd be he wouldn't be that terrified if the ground had opened up and he'd seen an freet coming out of the yes ground. yes yeah and actually the, the narrator's homecoming is also very important because so many Sudanese, educated Sudanese, can relate to him. The fact that he's studied abroad and that he's uh-huh. come back to serve his country, to work in the government. And that's kind of carried throughout uh, the, the novel. These scenes of homecoming are so familiar even now with so many Sudanese working abroad in the Gulf. You know, they're uh-huh. coming back to yes. their villages. They are being welcomed. And so when he tells us that Mustafa Said is a, is a stranger, we, we believe him straight away and we, uh, mm. we can tell then what is so strange about Mustafa Said that he has, has noticed him. Well, before we talk more about Mustafa Said and what happened to him in London, let's just tell listeners a little bit about the, the kind of style and structure of this book because that, that's what really impressed me. I, I kept some, you know, the comparison which kept coming up in my mind as I was reading it was this felt like it was on a level with The Great Gatsby by Fitzgerald. It felt, you know, it's similarly narrated by a narrator who becomes increasingly involved in this story. There's a central mystery around a, a man and, and, you know, we gradually discover his backstory. But more than that, it's about memory and regret and it's written in such poetic prose with these wonderful repetitions and symmetries and I just thought it was marvellous and and so Leila what is the, the structure of this book how does the story get related to us because it's it's not a linear narrative is it no it's not a linear narrative but one thing I'll say it is a thriller it is really a it page really turner is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so you really read it you know you just keep turning the pages and it's so tight it's not long and once the mystery kicks off with this man in the middle of the village speaking English and, and, and this mysterious mm. man, then we want to know more and more about him. And it unfolds in different ways. There's conversations between the two. There is um, sometimes when Mustafa Said's voice takes over and it's got pages and pages of him speaking. Uh, there's letters. There's uh, Well, I think it's not too much of a spoiler to say that very near the beginning, Mustafa dies. I mean, it's, it's a shock when it happens, but it's very near the beginning. And so a lot of it is told through letters that he's left or through other people's memories of him. Yes. I think Sally really wrong foots you all the time, doesn't he? Just as you're getting used to his character, suddenly he's gone. Yes, yes. He dies at the, uh, sort of at the very beginning. And then he's kind of piecing together the mystery. Well, that's a good moment to say that we're just approaching the, uh, as you can probably hear from the noise, we're just approaching the major rail terminus of London Victoria Station. And this is an important location in the novel. It, it, there's a repeated line which occurs um, again and again when Mustafa is telling his story. He says, uh, the train carried me to Victoria Station and to the world of Jean Morris, 
And that sentence recurs three times. And at this station, Victoria is kind of Mustafa's gateway to the city of London. So let's head on inside and, and talk a little bit more about this character. Okay. I look to the right and left at the dark greenness, at the Saxon villages standing on the fringes of hills. The red roofs of houses vaulted like the backs of cows. A transparent veil of mist is spread above the valleys. What a great amount of water is here, how vast the greenness, and all those colours. The smell of the place is strange, like that of Mrs. Robinson's body. The sounds have a crisp impact on the ear, like the rustle of birds' wings. So we're in the middle of Victoria Station Concourse now. I imagine it looks rather different to uh, when Tyab would have known this place and certainly when Mustafa would have arrived here in the uh, you know, 1920 or so. But it's still the same station, probably the same wrought iron roof above us and probably almost as busy as it was then. Now, Tyab Sally himself, he's, he's studied at... Gordon Memorial College, which became Khartoum University, where, as we mentioned, you also studied yes, economics, yeah. and I think where your mother was a professor of yeah, statistics. Yeah, my mother was a professor of statistics, yeah. And then in 1953, Sally travelled to London, and he was part of this generation of, of the Sudanese who came to Britain to be educated in preparation for independence, which arrived in 1956. Yes, there was this generation, which included my dad, and he went to actually Trinity College, uh, Dublin. Uh-huh. So they were full of optimism for independence, uh, which happened in Sudan very um, uh, peacefully. It was not a brutal, uh, it, it happened actually quite uh, smoothly. And so um, they had great hopes for the country. You know, they had. Uh, uh, hopes that it would be, you know, economically uh, thriving, it would be successful, and it would uh, keep a strong relationship with Britain. Uh-huh. Well, similarly, this character Mustafa Saeed, we learn, was educated in Khartoum and then Cairo, and then travels to England just after the First World War. And one thing we learned very early about him is that he was a brilliant student. But what are, what are Mustafa's first impressions of England when he, uh, when he arrives here? So he's the first Sudanese to be sent on a scholarship to Cairo and, and London. That's uh-huh. how it's described. He's uh, precocious, he's unusual, and he becomes, uh, quoting the book, the spoiled child of the, of the English. Yes, it gets nicknamed by some people the black Englishman. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one of the, 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 the lines of the book is also that he's a, a showpiece exhibited by members of the aristocracy in the 20s and 30s who were affecting liberalism. Mm. Uh, the handsome black man courted in bohemian circles. And he's described as being intelligent, calculating, cold, and, um, you know, driven. To yes, yes. He's a fascinating character. I mean, we, we, well, I think we'll talk more shortly about his, his sort of state of his psychology. But he has this amazing career in Britain, doesn't he? He lives here for almost 30 years. He studies first at Oxford, and then he's appointed a lecturer in economics at London University at the age of just 24, which, you know, would be extraordinary today. And I wanted to ask you, because, you know, having studied economics yourself, you know, it's interesting that he becomes famous for writing and lecturing about a system of economics based on love, not figures. He has, he sort of appeals for humanity in economics. And, you know, what do you think Sally is saying there, do you think? 
I think he's speaking about the independence of Sudan, the, the mm. idea then that people had such hopes for independence and hopes that these new independent countries would be economically, you know, um, able to sustain themselves mm. and that they would be expanding and that they would be uh, self-sufficient and, uh -huh, uh -huh. And, 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 and all of that. So I think maybe there's a, there's a hint towards that. And of course, it's, it's also very interesting for modern readers that Mustafa Said isn't experiencing the racism that we talk about now. Mm. This is not the same as the racism faced by the Windrush generation, right. for example, right. who came later in the 50s and the 60s. And because of he's so intelligent, he's so precocious and so unusual, so he then uh, is very special and he becomes like a a showcase, a pet, let's say, right, or a, right. he's shown off in all of these um, circles. And that's what makes him, I think, uh, develop this idea that he can play, w use this, this Orientalism. Right, because there's something going on underneath the surface as well. And it all seems to stem back to a, this formative experience that Mustafa had in another train station, in fact, in in Cairo. So he leaves Khartoum at the age of 12. He leaves his mother, uh, he never sees her again in fact, and travels to Cairo where he gets kind of adopted by this English couple, the Robinsons, who run a school there. And Leila, what is it that happens on the platform at Cairo, which he, he goes back to again and again? So uh, the couple in Cairo, the Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Robinson, they're described as being or what we would understand them today to be Orientalists, mm. but they're all the kind of the good kind. Right. <laughs> and and uh, the, the man, actually, Mr. Robinson, he um, becomes a Muslim. Yes, right. uh, at, at some point in choosing to be buried in Cairo. So there's a kindness and a kind of a love that, that they give him. And the, Mrs. Robinson stays loyal to Mustafa all throughout. But that time in the, in the Cairo station, Mustafa describes her embracing him. And then he says, at that moment, as I stood on the station platform, a Mr. Welter of sounds and sensation with the woman's arms around my neck, her mouth on my cheek, the smell of her body, a strange European smell. And, um, and so it kind of awakens early feelings in him. Right, and then ever after, there's sort of, he harks back to that moment where she embraces him on the platform. And, you know, he says things like, I felt as though Cairo, that large mountain to which my camel had carried me, was a European woman, just like Mrs. Robinson, its arms embracing me. And, um, and later when he gets to London, he says the city was transformed into an extraordinary woman with her symbols and her mysterious calls towards whom I drove my camels. And it, it's almost as if um, that moment of an embrace opens up a, a sort of world of experience for, for Mustafa. And, he, and in a way, everywhere he travels after that, he's trying to get back to that feeling he had when he was hugged by Mrs. Robinson on the platform. Yeah, that's quite a Freudian moment here for, <laughs> yes. for him. And I think the novel is like that. There is this whole, um, what made it unusual amongst Arab novels is this very much a Western influence because the writer has been educated in a very Western way. Uh -huh. So these influences come across in the work. And so that makes him very different compared to um, other Arab writers who were deeply um, embedded in Arabic culture, for example, uh -huh. Najib Mahfouz and, and some of his other contemporaries. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So um, this is an example of that here, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's, let's move on now. Let's walk towards Chelsea, which is an important location for Mustafa in this novel.
So we've left Victoria now and we're walking towards Chelsea. We're actually walking along Eaton Place, which uh, is a very smart street <laughs> with some very grand houses. But this is actually one of the streets that Tayyip Saleh lived on himself um, ah. after he met his wife in Britain. And, you know, apart from a couple of stints abroad elsewhere, after Saleh arrived in, in London, he made Britain his home for the rest of his life, didn't he? He worked initially for the BBC Arabic service, eventually becoming their head of drama. And in 1965, he married his wife, Julia, who was Scottish. And that was just before Season of Migration was published in 1966. And to the end of his life, he, he contributed weekly reviews and literary journalism to Al Majala magazine. And he died here in London in February 2009. It's rather remarkable to think of him living on this very, this very upmarket street, isn't it? Yes. But he was very sophisticated when you met him. You did feel that you were in the presence of somebody who's very, very sophisticated, very much the man of the world, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm not surprised. So it feels appropriate. <laughs> We're each going to get a lemonade, please. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks. So three, please. One three. rosé. So we've arrived in Chelsea now, and we're sitting outside a branch of Comptoir Libanais, the Lebanese cafe. Um, and it's a little bit of a stretch, but um, the reason we're sitting here is that the Comptoir Libanais outlets are decorated in a kind of, I suppose, a sort of Western fantasy of the Middle East, I'd say. There's lots of bright colours, lots of geometric patterns, lots of lanterns hanging from the roof. And it, Leila, it reminds me a little of the room that Mustafa sets up in London, because under the surface of this very successful academic career, he becomes a serial seducer, doesn't he? He, he pursues women kind of obsessively in London. And one of the ways he entices them is by creating this almost this sort of stage set of a room, this kind of fantasy of an Orientalist Arabian Nights dream. So yeah, how does he set it up to seduce these women? Well, it's, uh, I think at the time, in, in those days, it would have been of course, before the internet and before, you know, the cheap travel and where the worlds are so separate, you know, the, the East is so far away from the West, uh -huh. physically even. Uh, so for these young girls to, to enter into a, a, a room or a, a flat where there's Persian rugs on the floor or there's African masks on the wall and the incense burning and, and all of that. And the novel is set in the, um, the 20s, mm -hmm. you know. So that must have been really, really fascinating and exotic for them. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's been treated so much like an exotic figure that he kind of believes himself to be like that and he sets himself up in that way and he has learned that his uh, the color of his skin and that his nationality and that his you know africanness and his desert culture is the, is, a, is a passport to his success is a passport mm. for going ahead in life so he uses that yes. also to entice these uh, young and women you know he's he's so clever and so eloquent and he's um you know he says that he has this limitless store of hackneyed phrases that he can just spin these webs around uh, the women he's seducing yes. now you mentioned earlier that 
this book is a thriller and um, we discover early on that it is in part a murder mystery. We learn that there are four women who have been Mustafa's lovers and all of them have died. Three have taken their own lives and one has been killed. We'll talk about all of them in our conversation, but let's talk about the two youngest of those women, Anne Hammond, who is um, a student when Mustafa first meets her at, at Oxford, studying Oriental languages, and Sheila Greenwood, who's a waitress at, in a Soho restaurant, who is from a much simpler background. But both of them sort of, as you say, they fall for this, they, they sort of project onto Mustafa these kind of Orientalist fantasies. Well, he, he's manipulative and he's, yes. you know, he, he, uh, he connives to be in their company. He connives to get them into his flat. But it ends up, you know, disastrously because he doesn't love them. And mm. uh, then they realize this. And, of course, it's a tragedy. Heartbreaking for It's them. heartbreaking. I mean, it, this is the part where if the novel was written by a woman, we would have had a botched uh, abortion and a kind of a, something like that going uh-huh. along these lines. But instead here they commit suicide. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, to see Mustafa through the eyes of these young women. You know, Anne, for instance, he says, when she saw me, she saw a dark twilight like a false dawn. She yearned for tropical climes, cruel suns, purple horizons. And Sheila says, um, you know, he says, she would lick my face with her tongue. How marvelous your black color is, she would say to me. The color of magic and mystery and obscenities. And Leila, how you know, reading this book today, how do you interpret those reactions? I mean, it, it's it's complicated by the fact that this is one narrator describing Mustafa, describing how these women saw him. So it, there's all sorts of layers to unpeel here. But you know, how do you feel reading those? Um, descriptions. Well, I think that Mustafa at the time wouldn't have seen it as as racism. He wouldn't have understood it in that way. He he just can see that that he's um he's getting the result that he wants. He's pleasing them. But nowadays, you know, we we can see that they are fetishizing him and that they are um they're just seeing him as an exotic person. They're objectifying his blackness and um they are um over dramatizing his culture and yeah. and all of that so it is a kind of, of racism you know but but then he's a victim of that he's the victim of the way that he's been seen and the way that that he's then uh being treated but mm. of course it did have an effect on him it did have a negative uh, effect on him i mean it's interesting isn't it that edward said author of course of the landmark work orientalism he loved this book and he considered it one of the greatest arab books of the 20th century but of course about a decade after this book came out, he published Orientalism. He's exactly describing this kind of Western reaction to the other of the East. That's right. Yes, yeah, so th- they were more or less the same uh, generation. Mm. Uh, Edward Said, Franz Fanon, mm. who would, mm. who Taib Saleh would have read and would have been influenced by his, you know, work. Uh, Black skin, uh, what Musk, Musk says yep. these things. And actually, Fanon has a lot to say about the black man having a you know romantic relationship with a white woman, and this kind of a revenge, almost an inverse mm. revenge. And we will see later on then that this is said explicitly by some of the the, the characters and by uh, Mustafa Said uh, himself, uh-huh. as that he's uh, seeking vengeance. Right. Yeah. A kind of post-colonial retribution yes yes he's seeking vengeance for the crimes of colonialism against his own people so he's taking it out on the most vulnerable 
of Britain, which are the, the women. Mm-hmm. Now, it strikes me that in the book, you know, one of the contrasts that Sally deliberately sets up is between this, this kind of fake version of the Orient in Mustafa's room in London and a very rooted, earthy truth to the village in Sudan where over half the novel takes place. And it's interesting that the narrator, even though he has also been away from this country and away from his village, he's always drawn back to it. Um, he says somewhere that he's, he must be one of those birds that just belongs in one place of the world that isn't a migrating bird. And he says at one point, sometimes during the summer months in London, after a downpour of rain, I would breathe in the smell of it, the smell of the village. And at odd fleeting moments before sunset, I would see it, almost like a mirage in, in the desert. It's, and it's as if the village has kind of travelled with him. It's sort of in his thoughts. It's, it's ever-present. And, you know, I love that way in which the, Sally almost overlays London with this village in Sudan at that moment. Yeah, this is very poignant, and I, I can relate to that very personally, and a lot of people can relate to that, who've experienced this kind of homesickness, who've experienced this uh, coming from a place and being in, a, in, in, in another place, that your original childhood home doesn't leave you, it's there. And sometimes little things, as he's saying, the rain, he suddenly smells the village. Uh, I used to personally, the, sometimes the, the sound of the radiators would remind me of the azan, and I would hear the azan, and it's just... <laughs> I'm just—it's wow. just a radiator, but I'm, I'm kind of hearing this. So uh, people can relate to that. And then, of course, there's the the description of the of the grandfather, who's so much um, part of the narrator's life and so important to the narrator. And the, one of my favorite sentences, mm. maybe in the yeah. whole novel, yeah. is the one which says, uh, the narrator is speaking, and he says, by the standards of the European industrial world, we are poor peasants, but when I embrace my grandfather, I experience a sense of richness as though I am a note in the heartbeats of the very universe. Wow, that is mm. a great line, isn't it? Yeah. And yes, that, the grandfather figure does feel like a sort of connection to the planet, doesn't he, like to, to, to something bigger. There's a line, I think, where the narrator compares him to one of the scrub bushes in the desert of Sudan, but they survive so long because they demand so little of, of life. They're just um, right. living his simple life and doing exactly what he's meant to be doing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's right. a great character. Yeah, he's a character who is very real and at the same time symbolic of this authenticity of the the Sudanese peasant, you know, the, the real Sudanese villager who hasn't been contaminated, between quotes, by any other sort of outside uh, influence. Can you give the speaker's Thanks. So we've just arrived at Speaker's Corner in the northeast corner of Hyde Park, just near Marble Arch. And of course, this is the, the traditional spot where you're allowed to stand up on your soapbox and, and hold forth on your view of politics and religion, and conspiracy theories and whatever you want to, to tell the world. Uh, it's actually no one here today. We're here on a weekday, but I think on a weekend it's still pretty busy here. And this, of course, is one of the key locations in the novel because it's where Mustafa meets the third of the women that he he seduces, Isabella Seema. And he, st- he kind of sort of sidles up to her in the crowd 
at Speaker's Corner listening to the speakers. And when he gets closer, he says, I, I breathed in the odour of her body, that odour with which Mrs. Robinson had met me on the platform of Cairo's railway station. And in, in what ways is, is this seduction different to the two girls we've talked about already? Uh, so he comes to, uh, to Speaker's Corner sort of intentionally because he says, I left my house on a Saturday sniffing the air, feeling I was about to start upon a great hunt. And then when he comes to Speaker's Corner, he's standing listening to uh, a speaker from the West Indies talking about the, the color problem, he says. So this is where Isabella Seymour is. So um, it shows us something about her, that she's interested mm. enough to come and to listen sure, yes, to this good point. particular speaker speaking. So she does have an interest. And, and this is a feature of all the women that Mustafa gets involved with, that they do have an interest. In, to start with, their own interests, sometimes it's academic, sometimes it's personal. Um, I think one of them is almost socialists by inclination, isn't she? Uh, but what was specific about Isabella Seymour and what was quite serious is that she was a married woman. Right. Yes. Yeah. And he says, you know, he specifically says that he, he, he kind of woos her with fabricated stories. He tells her stories of deserts of golden sands and jungles where non-existent animals called out to one another. And of course, that's very similar to the way that Othello describes wooing Desdemona in the Shakespeare play. You know, Othello says, um, and of the cannibals that each other eat and the anthropophagi and men whose heads do grow beneath their shoulders, this to hear would Desdemona seriously incline. And as if to sort of underline this reference, um, at one point Isabella says to Mustafa, what race are you? And he answers, um, I'm Othello, Arab African. So what, what, you know, what is Sally doing here comparing Mustafa so explicitly with the character of Othello. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the, the kind of the idea of well, who is Mustafa Saeed. I mean, mm. when we're talking about who is he, mm. and then we say, is he then a modern Othello? Is right. he uh, the Othello of that particular time? Or alternatively, that he saw himself as an Othello and that he kind of played along with that because that's the only reference he could see within English literature. So right. he kind of like put himself, this is the role that he mm. kind of uh, fits. And so he played along with that. Mm. Um, I mean, that, that could also be one of yes. the interpretations. Yeah. I suppose the two distinctive characteristics of his character is that he's he's easily manipulated whereas Mustafa is the one doing the manipulating here and he's also famously jealous and Mustafa does not seem to be jealous I mean how would you describe Mustafa's mental state when he's living in London it's it's I mean I'd say it's it's almost bordering on psychopathy yes I mean he's very um, he's kind of driven by by forces that are not 100% clear to him and, and he's young at the time, he's in his uh, 20s. But he says, my mind was like a sharp knife. I had felt from childhood that I was different. I mean that I was not like other children of my age. So there was always this theme going on that he was so different, that he was not like uh, other, other, other people. Mm, but even uh, at home, he was an outsider yes. in some ways and, and felt, yes, felt like a different kind of person. I mean, there's, he has a memory of when he was still studying in Cairo, and a fellow student fell in love with him and then hated him. And she said, you're not a human being, you're a heartless machine. Mm. And this 
you know, through the whole first half of the novel, this is kind of how we come to think of him as this sort of, um, well, as this kind of psychopath who's sort of serially seducing women, has no feelings for other people, no sense of empathy or, or love. Mm. But, you know, he's such an interesting, complicated character, isn't he? Because, it, you know, on the one level, he could be acting out of a kind of cold-blooded revenge. The scholar Robert Irwin describes Mustafa's seductions as an act of post-colonial vengeance. But as we've already said, in some ways he is a victim in this situation. There's a moment where he says um, he's reaching the climax of our pain. I think this is with Isabella. And there passed through my head clouds of old, far-off memories like a vapour rising up from a salt lake in the middle of the desert. And it's almost like he he's just seeking ways to feel at peace with himself in this kind of conflicted situation that he finds himself in. Yeah, I mean, I think the ultimate peace was returning to the village. So even though he's described that way, he's described very much as, as being not a normal person. You know, he's very much the, 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 the mysterious, intriguing, uh, you know, uh, sort of anti-hero. But then he is accepted by the village he lives within the village he gets married he has children mm. he uh, becomes part of the village the villagers accept him they trust him and I think a lot of Sudanese critics saw that as a kind of a, the triumph of, of Sudanese village life as a kind uh-huh. of a coming home for this outsider mm. that there can be a kind of um, a kind of healing almost. a kind of yeah. healing almost yes and that he can be integrated back into the bigger Sudanese uh, community. That makes a lot of sense. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So we've walked a bit further north in London and we're, we're coming through Regent's Park now. I'm just starting to see through the trees the distinctive minaret of the central mosque in London, which is here just on the side of Regent's Park. There it is. So the, the mosque was completed in 1977. And, and Leila, for the listeners who haven't seen London's central mosque before, can you just describe it to us? Well, we're looking at it now from the park and you can see the minaret. It's, it's kind of like uh, needs a bit of paint, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the dome, the dome is kind of uh, huge and copper. And um, I think it, it, when it first was built, it must have looked exotic. But I think over the years, it's so part of London now. Completely. I feel that it's just it's completely at home uh, now in this part of London. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> yes. Being here and being, uh, you know, in the central mosque, I, I'm remembering when my uh, father-in-law passed away. And my father-in-law was a friend of uh, Tayyip Saleh. Uh-huh. And uh, like Tayyip Saleh, he was married to an Englishwoman, so my mother-in-law was, was English. And actually the first time I met Tayyip Saleh was when he came uh, to pay his condolences to my mother-in-law. So he came to their flat in, in Wimbledon right. and um, he was very philosophical about, um, you know, death and, 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 and he spoke very nice and comforting to my, to my <laughs> mother-in-law. And then when he got to the door, I gathered up courage to, um, to speak to him. And How I, old were you at this stage? Um, at that stage, I was I was in my thirties. Th- uh, okay, I was okay. in my thirties, okay. but I had started to write, but I hadn't right. published anything. Okay. Okay. So I was just, you know, I wasn't speaking to anybody about my my writing. <laughs> And um, so I, uh, I said to him that, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of your work, especially the, the wedding uh, of Zayn. And he was very happy. He looked very happy to hear this. And I was surprised because I thought, you know, uh, why should he care with just another one more reader telling him that his work is, is great. And then the following day, my father-in-law's uh, funeral prayers were held here right. in, the, in the central mosque right. and Tayyip Saleh was in attendance wow. so because afterwards people said I was in the women's section uh-huh. so I didn't know but uh-huh. afterwards I heard so this place does remind me of him yeah gosh well how appropriate this mosque and this part of the park is of course a key location in in your own novel Leila Minaret yes um, and you lived in this area previously right yeah I did in the 80s I lived on the other side of the mosque and so when I came to write my novel Minaret I used this part of my life in that time (laughs) this feels like a suitable place to talk about the cultural clash between north and south in this novel which Sally dramatizes so well Leila how would you say that this novel dramatizes the effects of colonialism in Sudan. Well, how does Sally go about that? Well, I mean, he's been showing us this um, character, Mustafa Saeed, who's gone to Britain and who's uh, had this extraordinary encounter with all these women and how he's kind of like um, acting kind of like an avenger for uh, the effects of colonialism on, on, on Sudan. But he does that also through the, la- the language and mm. the and the conversations people are having and uh, because the village 
still remains a symbol of stability with you know changes here and there you know there's the water wheels and they're changed mm -hmm. they changed into pumps and little bits of modernity here and there children go more and more children going to school and hospitals and things like that but the drama is happening in Britain in mm. London yeah and I feel like there's a sense in which the narrator over the course of the novel in a way he's a bit naive at the beginning isn't he because he says um, at one point um, the fact that they came to our land, I know not why, talking about the British in Egypt and Sudan, does that mean that we should poison our present and our future? Sooner or later, they will leave our country, just as many people throughout history have left many countries. And of course, the British did leave. You know, Sudan got its independence in 1956, but it's naive to think that then everything can go back to normal, right? Because there's a civil servant he bumps into later who says... Has not the country become independent? Have we not become free men in our own country? Be sure, though, that they will direct our affairs from afar. This is because they have left behind them people who think as they do. And it's going back to this idea of a, almost an infection, a kind of um, a germ has been placed into Sudan through this act of colonialism. And that's not going away anytime soon. Well, yes. I mean, Tayyip Saleh, he saw and he lived the disappointment, the sheer disappointment of, of the, the time after um, the post-independence period in Sudan, the military coups, one after the other, the instability, the civil wars. He would have seen all of that. Um, and this could probably be the reason that he didn't return or he couldn't uh, return. But I think also we could look at his sentence about the colonizers, the sooner or later mm. they will leave our country, just as many people throughout history mm. left many countries. Um, I kind of see that also as a, as a kind of optimism for the wider future that mm. maybe he could see as in terms of the longer stretch of history. Yes, Sudan has and other countries have uh, experienced neocolonialism and uh, all these drawbacks and the effects of it. But maybe then in, a, in the very far future, another 50 years, another 100 years, maybe he is kind of looking through the bigger picture. Yes, I see that. That's a that is a really positive way of looking at it. He's certainly, he doesn't, he's, he's unsparing in his criticism of the immediately post-independence ministers. He, he has that line where he says, the new rulers of Africa, smooth of face, lupine of mouth, their hands gleaming with rings of precious stones, exuding perfume from their cheeks, and it goes on and on. Suits of fine mohair, expensive silk rippling on their shoulders like the fur of Siamese cats. And of course we discover gradually through a number of other characters that Mustafa has somehow been involved in these um, machinations of the British, hasn't he? There's a young university lecturer, a friend of the narrator's, who um, brings Mustafa Saeed up and says he played an important role in the plottings of the English in the Sudan during the late 30s. He was one of their most faithful supporters. So suddenly we see another aspect of this strange character, Mustafa, that he's He's not only a sort of pet of the English, he's actually become their sort of puppet back in his home country. Yeah, people are saying that about him and we never mm. know whether that is actually true or right. is it just never know if it's kind of true. gossip. I mean, mm. Mrs. Robinson, who's a supporter all throughout, and she says that um, Mustafa Said played a great part in drawing attention, meaning in the UK, to the misery in which his countrymen live under our colonial mandate. 
So she sees him as doing something actually quite uh, humanitarian, mm. that he has uh, shown the sufferings of the ordinary Sudanese under colonialism. And, and in fact, there's that minister who says um, that in 1928, he, Mustafa was president of the Society for the Struggle for African Freedom, of which I was a committee member. What a man he was. He's one of the greatest Africans I've ever known. So you get to the end of a novel and you just you don't know where to place him. Yeah, he's very slippery. And, and, and what is also heartbreaking is that he could have been, this is what uh, Sudan mm, needed, this, right. his, brilliance, his brilliance, his genius, and that this is what people had hoped for, that this generation would go, they would become educated, they yeah. would come back, and they would get this country up and running, and they would modernize it, mm. and there would be schools, there would be hospitals. So this, the dream of independence, um, very much uh, rested on, on personalities like these, and they had the future seemed almost certain for them that they would come back and uh, lead a, a, an independent Sudan into a kind of a golden future. But then, you know, this didn't take place. And, uh, and this is why this novel speaks to so many of the disillusioned, uh, you know, Africans and Arabs of the time and till now. We're just in a cab now on our way to the city of London. And Leila, I wonder if uh, now we should introduce the fourth woman whom Mustafa becomes entangled with in London, the woman who would become his wife, Jean Morris. Now, we, we, you know, we know from the beginning that there's an extra significance to Jean Morris because he keeps saying, you know, being drawn to London and the world of Jean Morris. And again, quite early in the book, we discover that not only was she his wife, She's also dead, and he killed her. Um, and we get glimpses of this trial that he's undergoing. And very early on in the book, there's an exchange where the cross-examiner says, did you kill Jean Morris? And he says, yes. Did you kill her intentionally? Yes. So, Leila, who is this character, Jean Morris? She's one of the most unusual portraits in the book, I think. Yeah, like him, she doesn't seem to have a family. She's also described as somebody who uh, they moved in the same circles and he kept bumping into her in parties and gatherings. But uh, unlike the other women, she didn't really buy into his <laughs> kind of orientalist mm. kind of uh, tricks. She reminds me of uh, the waitress Mildred in... Um, Somerset Maugham's uh, novel of human bondage. Ah, okay. A kind of, um, yes, a sort of fatal entrapment almost. Yeah, yeah, where mm. she's kind of violent and she breaks things mm. and she's, she uh, throws an expensive Persian rug in the fire. She tears up a, a piece of calligraphy and it, there's a bit of a, uh, the power balance is different. Mm. It definitely it feels is. different. It, he is immediately drawn to her and it's almost the fact that she doesn't fall for his charms immediately that attracts him to her, right? And he, he pursues her for years. And there's something sort of mysterious about her as well, isn't there? There's a line where he says that she used to lie about the most ordinary things and would return with amazing and incredible stories like some mendicant Sherazade. So it's almost like she's part of the Arabian Nights herself. Yes, yeah. It's a bit rich of him to complain about the <laughs> <laughs> That's 
We've moved across London now, and we're standing outside the Old Bailey, the central criminal court in London. And, you know, this is a really imposing building on the edge of the old city of London. This is actually the site of the historic Newgate Prison, and it got replaced by the criminal courts, and it's where the biggest criminal cases are tried. And one of the threads running through this novel is the court case, the trial of Mustafa Saeed for the murder of his wife, Jean Morris. And that takes place inside this building. And we keep getting snippets of that court case, don't we? It's sort of little tastes of it. And there's a kind of irony because he's been such a kind of darling of British academics, of, of a certain class of um, Englishmen, that both the prosecutor... Sir Arthur Higgins and the defence lawyer, Professor Maxwell Foster Keane, are people he knows. They both taught him. And um, in the very setup of this court case, it's, I guess it's kind of laughing at the kind of dispassionate way in which the law tries to work. Why do you think Time Sully you know, sets such a crucial scene in, in this location, in the Old Bailey? What, what significance does that have? Well, some of his friends have said that he was um, influenced by a homicide case that happened in London, in East London, uh, of a restaurant um, owner, possibly also Arab or Egyptian, murdering his, his wife. Right. So that could have been a case that was a real-life case I that see. he uh, witnessed as while he was living in London. And yeah. I suppose this building is right at the heart of the British judicial system. Mm. It's, it's right at the heart of London. It feels like... You know, if Mustafa sees himself as an invader, then he's reached the very centre of the, of the establishment, as it were. That's true. Yeah. And him saying that I knew the prosecutor and the, yeah. the defence is is also another way showing, you know, yeah, proving bragging, his yeah. bragging of his uh, connections that he was so highly uh, connected. Mm. Leila, how would you describe the relationship between Mustafa and Jean Morris? Well, it was toxic, yeah. very, very toxic. Right. And um, there is a mention of infidelity because he says, I knew she was being unfaithful to me. The whole house was impregnated with the smell of infidelity. And she wasn't sort of hiding it. Mm. And If anything, the opposite. It almost feels like she's goading him, yes, and sort of driving him to do something extreme. She's taunting him. She's taunting him with it. And it's a kind of a bit, uh, it reminded me of uh, Rebecca in the Daphne mm. de Maurier novel, where she also stands and taunts him. Mm. And he's also narrating this to his new wife yes, about how right. she stood and how she taunted him with infidelity yes. and, 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 and all that. So there's kind of echoes I and, absolutely um, agree. I also It's very difficult to, to figure out that, yeah. really what what kind of was making her tick and because we don't really hear her side of of the story. It's yes, very right. much uh, Mustafa Saeed and how he sees it. And even when inside the court we don't get any glimpses of uh, of anybody speaking on her behalf. True. Mm. That's a very good point actually, isn't it? But all this is mediated through Mustafa's point of view and 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 not only that it's it's his version of events that he's telling to the narrator which the narrator is then passing on there, there could well be a sense in which he's trying to you know he's defending himself to the narrator and, and smoothing over certain aspects of it yeah well the novel is very macho I mean it's the, the opening line where he says it was gentlemen he's you, yes. you see the narrator addressing a group of men 
and for me coming into the novel you know as a woman you always feel uh, you're not one of the people who the story is being told mm. to mm. <laughs> and 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 how does this court case go it sort of it escalates from an act of brutal domestic violence to something bigger to a kind of clash between cultures doesn't it there, there's a moment where mustafa says that um in that court, I heard the rattle of swords in Carthage and the clatter of hooves of Allenby's horses desecrating the ground of Jerusalem. It's almost as if the kind of culture clash of the novel comes to a head in this courtroom in the centre of London. Yeah, of course. And then, of course, some of the language used by the lawyers is also kind of racist. Like, for example, after all, all the efforts we've made to educate you, it's as if you'd come out of the jungle for the first time. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things yes, that, that, are, right. that I said. Extremely racist, yeah. yeah. Also, Mustafa Zai says, uh, I had a sort of feeling of superiority towards them, for the ritual was being held primarily because of me, and I, over and above everything else, am a colonizer. I am the intruder whose fate must be decided. So again, here he's uh, alluding to this idea of him being a colonizer, mm. you know, of this being... Um, he has invaded a, Britain. Yes, yes, and he's the avenger, mm. yeah. And actually, uh, Tayyip Saleh, in an interview, uh, when he's asked about this specific thing, he said, uh, Safa Said wants to inflict on Europe the degradation which it had imposed upon his people. He wants to rape Europe in a metaphorical fashion. Gosh... Yeah, it's, I mean, it, you can you definitely sort of get some of the the force of that from the lines like Mustafa saying, you know, my bedroom became a theater of war, my bed a patch of hell. When I grasped her, as in Jean Morris, it was like grasping at clouds, like bedding a shooting star, like mounting the back of a Prussian military march. They're great metaphors, but you know, clearly Taib Salib was imagining a pretty brutal, you know, essentially a metaphorical rape at the, mm. at the heart of that relationship. So at the end of his trial, he could have been hanged for murder. He's not. He's sentenced to seven years imprisonment. And there's almost a sense in the novel that that's an, almost a form of revenge, that in a way hanging would have been the kinder option to put him out of the misery that he's in. And instead he's, he's inflicted with a kind of purgatory, a sort of years in prison and then released to wander the world. And... It's rather touching that the one person who stays loyal to him and who's here at the Old Bailey supporting him is Elizabeth Robinson, the teacher's wife who, you know, in many ways has been a very important figure for him throughout yeah, his life. His foster mother. His in foster mother in, in many Egypt, ways. Egypt, yeah, the one who... who um, and he says, I found no bosom except hers on which to rest my head when they sentenced me. And so we can imagine her here exactly where we're standing and yeah. supporting him after that court decision. So... He gets sentenced to prison here, seven years, and then at some point after that, he leaves Britain and makes his way back to Sudan, and that's the point at the beginning of the novel when the narrator meets him. And in Sudan, he, he marries, he has a couple of children. And so let's, let's walk on to another location to discuss what happens in Sudan and what he brings with him from these experiences in the UK. I leave you the key to my private room where you will perhaps find what you are looking for. I know you to be suffering from undue curiosity where I am concerned, something for which I can find no justification. Whatever my life has been, 
It contains no warning or lesson for anyone. Leila, we, we mentioned earlier that Mustafa dies, or, or at least disappears, early on in the novel. And at that point, the narrator discovers that Mustafa has made him the guardian of his family, responsible for his widow and for his two sons. Um, and as well as that, he leaves the narrator with a key, a key to a secret locked room in his home in Sudan, uh, which he doesn't open immediately. It's, it's another mystery that runs through the novel, what is going to be inside this locked room. And he sort of speculates about what might be in this room, and his friend, who's stayed in the village, Marjoub, imagines that there might be all sorts of treasures in there, like the treasures of King Solomon's mines, another sort of legend of Africa. But when the narrator finally does get into this room, what does he discover? Well, he um, he opens the door and he goes in, and the, the, the shock is similar to the shock that we got at the beginning of the novel when Mustafa Said suddenly started to say the poetry, the English uh-huh. poetry. So the shock is that this room is all full of English things. There's an right. English fireplace and there's Victorian chairs covered in silk material and there's books and, and, and all that. And then he also, the narrator is sure to say that there's not a single Arabic book. Uh-huh. This is a graveyard, a mausoleum, an insane idea, a prison, a huge joke, a treasure chamber. And of course, what's, what's so strange about this is that of, when you think about the colonizer taking things from Africa, or from Sudan, sh- taking it back, showing it off in museums for everyone to see. Mm. Whereas here it's kind of the opposite. It's the things from England are locked in this room. They're in a secret uh, place. And you can just imagine this this uh, village of Mustafa Said living his normal village life and then having this secret room where he keeps the British or the English mm. side of his life. Mm. And um, it just part of, of, of the distance between the two worlds, that them coming together like that. One part needs to be squashed and put mm. inside a room and kind of hidden away. Mm, that's interesting. It's so strange, isn't it, that he's kind of distilled his impressions of England into these kind of leather furniture and all these sort of items. And then, of course, there are photographs and portraits of the four women that we've been discussing in this room as well. In this room, yeah, there's bits of his past and and I think a lot of people like us who have these two cultures, who move between these two worlds, we react to this. We understand this world where we're living one thing and having another space, which is like a secret uh, place that we are not sharing with our normal day-to-day uh, uh-huh. life. And I think the generation in those days who went uh, abroad to study and then came back, uh, I remember friends of my father who traveled, who had studied in the States, for example, they would have copies of American literature in right. their in their um, houses as, you know, my father had English literature and Iris Murdoch and <laughs> things, things, <laughs> things like that. So they, uh, a lot of them had this great uh, uh, emotional attachment. Mm. It was a time of their life when they were young and they were away right. from their families and they went abroad and they, they, so they, they've come back with this. Uh, and as a way of link, as kind of link to as that a link time. To that. And of course, it's a, another of these symmetries. It kind of it reminds us of Mustafa's room in London, which is a sort of fantasy of mm. the East, of the Orient, and it's a kind of 
they're both a room out of place, aren't they? These yes. two rooms. Yeah. Well, Leila, let's carry on. We're we're on our way down towards the river, the River Thames, running through London, and let's head on to our final stop for today's conversation. So, Leila, we're coming to the end of our conversation now. We've walked down from the Old Bailey, down through London to the shores of the Thames. And we're standing at a particular spot on the Victoria Embankment in front of Cleopatra's Needle, the, uh, the great Egyptian obelisk, which is such a landmark of this part of the river. It dates from the 15th century BC, and it originally stood in Heliopolis um, in Cairo, and then from about 12 BC, it was in Alexandria. So this is, a, this is a piece of stone that's seen the Nile, it's seen Egypt, and now it's standing here in London. And of course, we're standing looking out over, you know, the great river of this city, and it, it feels like a good moment to talk about the final pages of the novel, when the narrator decides to swim out into the Nile. There's a moment where he says, turning to left and right, I found I was halfway between north and south. I was unable to continue, unable to return, in a state between life and death, and I saw formations of sand grouse heading northwards. So the very, almost the final page of the novel, we get this moment of actual migration of birds flying north, and he gets almost sort of existentially stuck between the north and south shore, and he... he has this moment of feeling the river pulling him down and then he decides to finally make a decision which he's always been rather bad at doing and, and decides he's going to embrace life finally. How do, what do you make of that ending to the novel? How do you find it? Yeah, I think it's still, it still it does hit the optimistic note that he does choose life, that he does want to live even if this was a a kind of an attempt at suicide after the trauma of seeing the secret room and that he does then has uh, second thoughts and he does choose uh, life. And there's a lot of guilt in the narrator. He feels that he hasn't saved whoever he needs to save and he hasn't stepped in to, to, to take action. So there is a feeling of uh, he is tormented by, by guilt and he's tormented by the deep understanding that he, out of all people, has uh, towards the, the story of Mustafa Saeed and, and towards the, the tragedy of, of, of Mustafa Saeed. Mm-hmm, he does. Now, when, when this novel was published in Penguin Modern Classics in 2003, Tayyip Sali wrote a special introduction, which is still in that edition, and he says in that introduction that the book caused great consternation among the religious establishment, who attacked it in mosques as decadent, insulting to religion, and indeed pornographic. And, uh, and in fact, the publishers of the book edition, um, the Egyptian Ministry of Information, they then removed it from circulation and it remained banned in Egypt for 30 years and he says it gets banned from time to time in this country or that and then it is unbanned it is permanently banned in all the Gulf states it is loved and hated and attacked and praised and I wondered Leila to finish you know how do you see Tayyip Sali's reputation and legacy today and, and what is the status of this book and and what do you think its prospects are for the future? 
I think his, 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 the prospects are, are great because these things that he mentioned, uh, the banning and all that, that's very much in the past now. The book is, is available in, in Egypt, in Sudan, and um, it's taught in universities throughout the world. Uh, people have a better understanding of it. And I think one of the things that was also worth mentioning is that when it was translated into English, it was published by Heinemann African Writers Series. Yes. And this established Taib Saleh as an African writer, you know, in the same uh, liege as uh, Chinua Achebe. Yes, who, indeed, who started that Heinemann who, African series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was embraced as an African uh, writer throughout um, Africa. And the theme of Season of Migration, the decolonization, the influence of Fanon, that found huge support in a kind of post-independence Africa. Really, they understood this book very well and they got to, to grips to it. And so it was also, um, you know, described by Edward Said as one of the best six top Arabic literature books ever written. You know, so I have seen in my lifetime, I have seen the novel grow in stature as the years go by. When you wrote the obituary for Taib Sali, you you, uh, you had a lovely line about him being the true ambassador of Sudan, and and can you remember what you said about him there? Uh, yes, I felt you know I said that I felt that he was you know the the people's true ambassador, and we were proud of him because there was a time when uh, uh, the Arab world and uh, the the Western world, whenever Sudanese literature is mentioned. Uh, you know, it was Tayyip Saleh's name was mentioned, and when we were as Sunnis, we were proud of that because you know we felt that he had written about us, uh, and also as a person, you know, he was modest, he was very liked, he was very popular, very sophisticated. Um, he stood by the Sudanese, even though he was far away. He stood by the Sudanese in, in the times of troubles and the coups that took place in Sudan. People felt that he was near to them. He hadn't forgotten about uh, Sudan. And I remember one of his, um, uh, one of the last interviews that he did yeah. um, with a with a Sudanese uh, TV channel. And the interviewer was actually quite rough with him and he said to him, well, how come you don't live in Sudan anymore? And, uh, and I could see that he was very visibly moved. Uh, and he said, Sudan lives in my heart. I don't need to be there physically. Oh, yeah, so he's oh, always, yeah. and, you know, and he kept going back to this village, the same village in season of migration, and he would write about it and again and again in, in, in his work. So he circled this village and this uh, way of life, and, and he had this you know, great uh, attachment um, to, oh, to it. that's yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Well, Leila, what a perfect place to wrap up our conversation today here on the banks of the Thames. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about Taib Sully and Season of Migration to the North. Thank you, Henry. Thanks. Many thanks to Leila Abuleila and to our kind partners, Penguin Classics. I'm Henry Elliott. The producer is Andrea Rangecroft and the music is by Don Gould. If you enjoyed this episode of On the Road with Penguin Classics, please spread the word and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll leave you with this. When Tayab Sali died in 2009, Leila wrote an obituary for Banipal, the magazine of modern Arab literature in English translation. Here is a small extract from her tribute, read by Leila. Although he did not leave behind a huge body of work, its excellent quality more than compensated for the quantity. 
It made him a writer of classic stature, whose stories carried deep intellectual concerns, but still made readers eager to turn the pages in sheer delight. Perhaps the secret lay in his immense talent, his wide reading, his skills as a storyteller, and his excellent command of language. Perhaps it was because he loved the places and characters he wrote about, or perhaps it was his ability to see and to show us how the inner truth can wear an outward disguise. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.